A lot of leaders and innovators talk about disrupting healthcare, but what does that really mean? And how does one actually do it? On Life-Centered Healthcare, we dive into these questions and more, talking to innovators who are leveraging Clay Christensen's theories to transform our healthcare ecosystem. I'm Ann Summers-Hogg, Senior Research Fellow of Healthcare at the Clayton Christensen Institute, and I hope these stories help inspire you along your journey to transform health and care. Welcome to our first episode of Life-Centered Healthcare. My name is Ann Summers-Hogg, and I'm the Senior Research Fellow for Healthcare at the Clayton Christensen Institute. I'm so thrilled you are here. And you may be wondering what this new podcast will cover. So let me start by saying why we are launching it. You've likely heard a lot about health leaders and health innovators talking about disrupting healthcare. But what does that really mean? What does it actually look like in the field? And how does one actually go about doing it? In this podcast series, we'll discuss the application of disruptive innovation along with late Harvard professor Clay Christensen's other theories to healthcare. And we'll talk about their potential to transform our industry. Today, we'll start with the topic of disruptive innovation. And I'm happy to say you'll get to learn from our guest, Gurjeet Singh, the founder of Omer Robotics and Omer Fertility. Welcome, Gurjeet. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. We're so glad you're here. And before we dive into our discussion, I'll start with just a brief overview of disruptive innovation for our listeners. And disruptive innovation, which is frequently misunderstood concept, describes a process by which a product or service takes root at either the bottom of the market or with a group of non-consumers. And it's able to take root by being less expensive and more accessible than current options. However, it's important to remember that disruption doesn't stop where it starts. Disruptors relentlessly move up market, eventually displacing established players. With a background of what disruptive innovation is, I also want to be clear about what disruptive innovation is not. And disruptive innovations are not breakthrough technologies that make good products better. Instead, they're innovations that make products and services more accessible and more affordable, thereby making them available to a larger population. So, with that overview, I want to introduce you to Jurjeet's company, Oma Fertility. This is a new type of fertility clinic, one whose mission revolves around improving access, affordability, and outcomes of in vitro fertilization, also known as IVF. And I wrote about Oma last year, and in that piece, I put its model to our six-question test in order to assess its disruptive potential. And the analysis showed that compared to traditional fertility offerings, it does have disruptive potential. So without further ado, let's talk to Oma's founder about what makes this model disruptive and why it's an innovator worth watching. So to kick off the episode, could you tell our listeners why you founded Oma Fertility? Yes. So very quickly, Ann Summers, my background is I'm a mathematician and a computer scientist. I did my PhD from Stanford, you know, decade and a half ago at this point. My research there was funded by DARPA, who encouraged us to commercialize it, which is how I built my previous company, Ayasti, where we essentially built machine learning or AI-based enterprise software that we sold into large health systems, pharma companies, banks, and so on. I had just, you know, I built the company over a decade. I had just sold it in 2019. And um, very coincidentally, I heard of somebody in my wife's office who was going through IVF. Their family went through six cycles of treatments, did not succeed, paid $45,000 per treatment cycle and ended up having to file for a bankruptcy. You know, it completely destroyed their life. And 
again, sort of very coincidentally, my now co-founder Sahil was visiting us in the US as a family friend. He is a physician himself and he had built a chain of IVF clinics in India where at the time they did, you know, 6,000 IVF cycles a year, saw 15,000 patients in a, in a year. And I was asking him, you know, about this cost of IVF. And he told me that in India, the cost of an IVF treatment was only about $3,000 on an average. Now, if you do the math and you apply kind of a cost of living adjustment, typically you apply a 4x factor for India. So if you think of it in US dollars, you know, it, a cycle should translate to about $12,000 in the US. Obviously, my wife's colleagues paid a whole lot more than that and, you know, suffered through it emotionally, financially, physically, and didn't have a child to show for it. So he said, why don't you come visit one of our clinics in India? So you have a sense for how it works. Very coincidentally, my now third co-founder, Kiran, was also available. We all you know, went to India. And honestly, the first time I saw an IVF clinic, I was just completely blown away. My expectation was that if somebody pays tens of thousands of dollars for a medical treatment, that there would be some science fiction going on behind the scenes. There would be robots or like there would be some science fiction stuff going on. Uh, super naively, obviously, I'm a mathematician again. <laughs> but then what I actually saw in a clinic was it was like a high school biology lab. You know, they had the same equipment that you see in any high, advanced high school, the same microscopes, the same incubators. It felt super duper archaic. We came back to the US, visited a bunch of clinics in the US, and they were perhaps slightly cleaner. But by and large, they had the same equipment, the same procedures, and the same success rate as a third world country. Additionally, when we started looking at the IVF market, again, it was super duper astounding because, you know, if you think of countries like first world countries like Denmark, Israel, Japan, the percentage of IVF births in these countries is anywhere between 6 and 12%. While in the US, the percentage of IVF births is only 2.1%. And so... It's not the case that IVF treatments are more successful in these other countries or the incidence of infertility is higher in these other countries, so more people need it. That's not the case at all. It's just that accessibility and affordability were the two major drivers why, uh, due to which IVF was not being adopted at the same rate in the US as it had been in these other countries. And so that's where we saw an opportunity and we decided to build OMA Robotics and OMA Fertility. What an impressive founding story truly gets to the crux of disruptive innovation, which is to improve the accessibility and to improve the affordability. And that's where I want to dive in first, because part of your mission is to improve the affordability of fertility care. And you mentioned your friend was paying 45000 out of pocket. I believe in the US, the current average is fifteen to $30,000 per cycle, which is still a huge range and massively expensive. And... That's not a small undertaking to take something that's fifteen to thirty thousand dollars on average and make it affordable. So, how are you able to offer the service for closer to nine thousand dollars, improving accessibility and offering fertility care to current non-consumers? So, if you look at the fertility market, you know there is fundamentally no reason for it to be as expensive as it is. There's no reason. It has traditionally been expensive because that's what people could get away with. So, if you look at the fundamental economics of an IVF cycle. On an average, the material cost of IVF, you know, if you will, the catheters, the petri dishes, all the disposables, they cost about $1,500 to $2,000. And everything else is basically the cost of time. Now, if you think about IVF as a treatment, you know, in a, call it a roughly two to three week treatment period, the vast majority of the IVF treatment happens at home 
already because the vast majority of the treatment is here's a treatment regimen. Here are these drugs, you know, inject yourself, be on schedule, come in for an ultrasound, you know, call it five times in those two to three weeks, whatever it might, might be. And so if you think about sort of the general, you know, how long it takes and what's the actual time that somebody needs to spend in the clinic, there is no way that you can justify a $45,000 treatment cost. It just doesn't make sense. It's highway robbery. And so basically what we have done is, in addition to kind of being ethical and transparent about our pricing, we have also done some things that you would expect kind of any modern company in the year 2023 to do, which is, you know, we have a centralized customer care function, which allows us to sort of have one-click access to a care assistant or a care advocate 24-7, no matter what time zone you are in. But on the flip side, you know, since you're not staffing up these individuals at different clinic locations, it also sort of multiplexes and saves cost. We have a centralized finance function, a centralized IT function, like a lot of the basic things that you would expect any smart company to do. You know, we do those in 2023, which is very far from the norm in the IVF industry. Right. And we could even say in healthcare as a whole. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So... Another thing I'd love to hear you talk more about is the Sperm Insight tool and how it's an enabling technology within your business model. Tell us more about it. What makes it unique and how does it set you up to provide more affordable, better IVF outcomes? So let me first tell you and give you some context behind why sperm selection is important in IVF. So in a typical IVF cycle, typical IVF cycle, you know, the the female partner is maybe in their mid-30s. The male partner is maybe in their late 30s, maybe in their early 40s. That's a very typical sort of person who shows our family who shows up for IVF. And, you know, in a typical IVF cycle, the family will be lucky to have about 20 eggs that they're working with. Right. And the job in IVF, uh, the job of the laboratory in the IVF is to convert as many of those eggs into healthy embryos as humanly possible. That's the main thing that they're doing. Now, since the eggs are so few in number, they are extremely precious. You know, you cannot afford to waste any egg, obviously. So they are treated with extreme care. They are financially difficult for the patients. They are physically difficult for the families, right? So you can't, there's no selection in eggs, in other words. You get what you get, and then you have to use all the eggs that you can get your hands on in a cycle. On the other hand, in a typical healthy male sperm sample, there's 100 million sperm cells. Also, in a typical healthy male sperm sample, only 4% of these cells are considered to be normal according to the WHO criteria for sperm grading. Today, an embryologist looks at about 20 cells for about 10 seconds before they pick one sperm cell to fertilize an egg with. And again, if you do the math in your head, the probability that seeing a sample of 20 cells out of 100 million that the sample even contains one of the 4 million normal sperm cells is so abysmally small that selecting the best or the most promising sperm cell is not really a human scale problem. So what our technology Oma Sperm Insight does is that it basically uses machine learning to grade all the sperm cells that an embryologist can see in a field of view in parallel so that their attention can be drawn to the best sperm cells. They can then click on the sperm cell, again, all in real time, and if they agree with the assessment of the sperm cell, of uh, the machine learning system's assessment of the sperm cell, ultimately it's their final decision. Then they can pick up the sperm cell there and then and do the procedure. And the main thing that it does, right, is that if you, it helps them distinguish 
an okay sperm, a sperm cell that is swimming normally, which has good motility, as it said, but bad morphology from sperm cells that have good motility and have good morphology. Morphology means the shape of the sperm cell, which is roughly speaking, indicative of the quality of the DNA inside the sperm cell. And so that's what Oma Sperm Insight does. And from a sort of a cost perspective, the benefit to the consumers is, you know, we is we are hoping that by sort of using the best of what the machine learning can offer and combining it with the best of what a human embryologist does today, because ultimately it's a human embryologist decision in our current system, that we can actually hopefully achieve better outcomes for the patients. That's what we are hoping for. Awesome. So... The enabling technology helps the existing embryologists do their job better. Because like you said, 100 million sperm is not a human scale problem to look at under a microscope. So the machine learning and the AI helps those embryologists to pick the sperm that are most likely to successfully create an embryo. That's right. The most promising sperm cells. Awesome. Very exciting. And... How do you see this technology enabling you to serve a larger market over time? And for our listeners' awareness, the reason I ask that question is that's one of the things disruptive innovations are able to do. They're able to move up market and serve a larger market over time. So how do you see this technology enabling your business model to do that? Yes. So let me first tell you about the embryology as a profession. So when you think about the IVF process from a customer's perspective, most of the times as a family or as a consumer, when you interact with an IVF clinic, you will interact with a physician or the nursing staff, and you will typically not interact with the embryology staff. And the embryology, though, is super duper important. It's basically the vast majority of the success rate of a clinic is the how the embryology lab is run and who's actually doing the the actual cellular procedures, which is what an embryologist does today. Yet most people give the credit to the physician, the reproductive endocrinologist. That's right. And don't get me wrong, they are super important. But the person who's absolutely not talked about in this whole situation is the embryologist behind the scenes who who carries most of the burden of an IVF procedure. So when you think about embryologists, right? Embryology is uh, is a profession into which most people fall accidentally Typically speaking, you know, if you ask a, ask a 10 year old, nobody will ever say, I want to grow up and become an embryologist. Right? That's not a thing that people say. <laughs> so the way most people become embryologists is that they do a four year science degree, you know, maybe do an internship at an embryology lab and kind of accidentally end up growing in that career. So this has two repercussions. The first repercussion is that it takes a decade to actually become good at the profession, right? You don't specifically study to become an embryologist you kind of just end up becoming one. And so it's an apprenticeship model. And on an average, before a lab will let an embryologist touch an egg with manipulators, obviously, you know, it's basically a seven-year period, roughly speaking, before an embryologist can even touch an egg under a microscope. So that's sort of one aspect of this, which is that, you know, it takes a long time to become a good embryologist. Then the second aspect of this is consistency. And so here's what I mean by consistency. If you look at the success rates, of various clinics, unlike many other professions, the difference between the best outcomes, best possible outcomes and the worst possible outcomes in an IVF setting is humongous. As an example, to put it, to make it concrete, if a family, you know, let's say the the female patient in the family is, let's say, less than 30, 35 years old, at a top 5% clinic, 
their probability of a live birth per IVF cycle is upwards of 78%. On the other hand, at a bottom 5% clinic, it's only about 22%, which is a humongous, right? It's a humongous difference in outcomes. And so the reason why this difference exists is because it's all in once the gametes are extracted, once the eggs and the sperm cells in the lab, everything else is manual. Somebody uses their vision, makes a decision, oh, this is a good cell. Oh, this is how I'm going to fertilize. Oh, this is how I'm going to incubate. So like all of these decisions are manual, which leads to consistency being a problem. So it takes a while to become one, to become an embryologist. And then it takes a while to get consistent results. And there are people who never reach that consistency. Even the best embryologists in the world have bad days. Results are better in the morning than they're in the evening. So like the hallmarks of what you see in any skill-based profession are true for embryology. And so from an accessibility perspective, the reason why we are developing our technologies, we've obviously discussed our sperm selection technology, but we have a long roadmap of, of where we are going. Ultimately, we want to automate embryology to a very, very large degree. And so ultimately, the reason why it's worth doing is consistency. So we can get the best results consistently is to address staffing shortages. Because like I said, nobody becomes an embryologist. It's like an accidentally, you know, somebody gets into it and then they become great at it. Capacity is another problem. So some of the best clinics today are unable to scale because they just can't hire enough embryologists who know what they're doing. So capacity is a problem. And then finally, market expansion. As I mentioned, in the US, only 2.1% of all births happen via IVF. That number needs to become, you know, four or five X larger, just looking at other countries in the world. And a lot of this is gated by embryology. And so our technology directly helps in increasing access to IVF. That's so impressive, especially when you tie it back to how you mentioned at the beginning, the difference between the live birth rate from IVF in the United States versus, say, European countries, and really just the opportunity to serve additional non-consumers. And additionally, those who are being overserved by the current offerings, but not getting the results that they're they're truly seeking. That's right. One other business model question that I have for you, and the reason I'm focusing on the business model so much is, as I mentioned at the start, technologies in and of themselves are not disruptive. It's the business model that is truly disruptive to the market. So when it comes to your business model, you made the decision to run your own clinics. Why was that? A couple of things. The first thing is from a time perspective. I have worked in healthcare pretty much all my career. You know, I've sold into hospital systems, into pharma companies, into health insurers, right? So I've, I've been in this ecosystem for a while. And from a time perspective, healthcare in general tends to move extremely slowly. Some of it is, you know, that's, you know, some of it is good, right? You don't want hasty decisions being made in healthcare in general. So, you know, I get that. But I think some of it is also that the decision-making in healthcare systems has a heavy emotional component to it, right? As opposed to, for example, when I worked with banks, very, very little emotional component to, you know, how deals get done. If things made sense, deals got done. While in healthcare, there is sort of an emotional, oh, you know, do you like the people or not, you know, and so on and so forth. Like there's a lot of emotional stuff in healthcare as well that sort of slows things down. So we realized basically the question we're asking is, okay, if we wanted to get our technology to the largest possible number of people, and make IVF accessible, what is the fastest way of achieving it? And so the answer was pretty obvious that, okay, we, we got to build our own clinics because 
if we are going to sell into existing clinics, it's just the validation cycles and the sales, it would just be too long before it benefited anybody in reality. So that was number one, which is the speed of execution. Number two, we, as I mentioned, you know, we have just our first device, the OMA sperm insight for sperm selection. You know, that from an engineering perspective was a device that we could build without running a clinic. You know, because we could buy sperm samples, we could image them, we could build machine learning systems, we could experiment with sperm cells, obviously with IRBs and consents in place. But from a biological materials perspective, it wasn't difficult. And don't get me wrong, the engineering was super difficult, but the access to biological materials was not as difficult. But for the rest of our roadmap, as we think about automating more, more and more of embryology, we need access to data about eggs and embryos. And that's something that's very, very difficult to acquire, very, very expensive. That was sort of the, the second reason why we said, okay, if we build our own clinics, we can consent the patients appropriately, have the correct IRBs in place, and then make sure that we are able to capture data that we need to build these automated machine learning and robotic systems. And again, just to kind of, as a point of comparison, had we sold into existing clinics to begin with, Imagine I go to a clinic and say, hey, buy my device. You know, it does sperm selection. So use it for sperm selection. Oh, and by the way, even though it doesn't do anything for the eggs, but still use it for the eggs so I can capture the data. Right. That's just not, <laughs> this doesn't make logical sense for somebody to do that. So these are the two reasons why we decided that we have to build our own clinics, right? To make it accessible to people quickly. And then secondly, so that we can build the rest of our roadmap. Awesome. So it, it was really a strategic decision in order to deliver on your mission of making IVF more accessible and more affordable, and then your ultimate vision for, for where you're going to take it. Fabulous. I want to go back to one other thing you said at the beginning when you were telling the founding story and about your wife's colleague who had such a horrific experience. Could you talk a little bit about how you're making fertility care simpler or more convenient than the current Offerings, And I hearken back to that first story because you talked about how not only was it expensive, but it was time consuming, it was emotionally draining, it's physically draining. So how are you addressing those components to make it simpler or more convenient? Yes. So basically we have, we think of our company and sort of the ethos of the company as being easy to describe in three key ideas. The first key idea behind our ethos is we want to get people successful in as few cycles as possible. Right, the entirety of our technology development is focused on that that first uh, pillar, if you will. The second key idea is we want to provide human-centered care, and this is really, really key because if you talk to people who have gone through the IVF process, even people who have been successful, they don't feel great about the process. They feel like they are a number in the system. They feel like you know they don't have any control. That's the main thing that we found in talking to you. They don't have any control. You know, they oftentimes people are like, you know, they ask the physician, oh, what can I do? Right. Like, and the physician is like, well, take your shots at time, you know, on at the regular schedule. And then that's it. Right. That doesn't give somebody a sense of control on the process. So if somebody has a question, as an example, they call the clinic. Oftentimes they will have to wait for a couple of days before somebody will respond. And in many cases, the answers they get are technically or clinically correct, but not emotionally satisfying. So this idea of empathetic care, you know, we have, as I mentioned, a care advocate team. We do many things, but one example is we, we have this care advocate team that is accessible 24-7 to customers within their cycle. And this team, one particular member of this team stays with the family throughout the procedure. When they first make contact 
with the clinic all the way to them, you know, graduating from the clinic. So they stay with this, uh, with the family for the whole duration. And they, being a single point of contact, if somebody has a clinical question, they will route it to the appropriate person and their job is to make sure that they get an answer as quickly as possible. And given sort of the way IVF is paid for, as, a, as an example, even, you don't just deal with clinical questions. You also deal with, oh, you know, what happens to embryos that I have, which might be excessive and do I have a discarding policy in place? Can I give them for research or how are they taken care of? If somebody is going through egg freezing, imagine at some point they're like, well, you know, I got pregnant naturally. I don't need those eggs anymore. How do you dispose of them? And so on. There are financial questions, right? So the contract said that X, Y, and Z services are included. I'll give you an example of this as well. You know, basically in many clinics today, they charge extra for every little thing. Like, for example, if the eggs are fertilized by an individual sperm cell, this process is called ICSI, intracytosplasmic sperm injection. Many clinics call, you know, charge extra for that. Many clinics charge extra for genetically screening all the embryos, which we don't. So oftentimes there are people who will come up with these questions. Oh, you know, Clinic X charged me $6,000 for this thing. What are you charging? Uh, so these are like basic things to answer, but if somebody has a question, you got to answer it very, very quickly. And so that's sort of part of our empathetic care. We also lay a heavy emphasis on education. So as an example, we do these bi-monthly nursing consultation sessions. Think of it as office hours, where a lot of people show up. It gives them a sense of community. We obviously all consent them that, hey, if you're on a sort of shared Zoom call, everybody will know you're there. So you have to be okay with that. But then it gives them a sense of community and they get a lot of their questions answered and, you know, what we've realized is that 80% of their questions are not clinical or medical. You know, they are more emotional questions. You know, I'm going through this. You know, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with family members and holidays? Things like that. So that's sort of the second key idea behind our ethos is sort of empathetic care. And then the third key idea, sort of our prime directive, if you will, is to make IVF more accessible. That's awesome. I love how the design of the entire business model is really grounded in focusing on the consumer, what it really feels like to be that individual or that couple going through the process. And in what you just shared around your ethos, it's you're simplifying the process when time is of the essence. Because as you mentioned, people are seeking control, but the answer they get about what they can do to help is, oh, we'll take your shots on time. Well, if I'm a patient and I have a question about how to take my medication or my injection at 6 p.m., most people aren't going to answer me at 6 p.m. I'm going to get an automated portal message that says, we only answer questions between 7 and 4, but you've addressed that. You've made it simpler. You've made it more convenient by creating that 24-7 access to the care coordinator. So what I love about, I love a lot of things about your model, but one of the things I really love about it is how you really designed the business model to focus on what it feels like to be that individual or that couple. And then how can you design a business around delivering on that value proposition? So just love, love the focus on the consumer. My last question for you today is, what do existing fertility providers think of your offering? How are you seeing incumbents in the market respond to your entrance or do they respond at all? So honestly, when we started the company, you know, we are my co-founder Kiran and I, we are from a tech background and uh, we were somewhat worried that, you know, we'll, we'll try to do this. It'll be disruptive. The clause will come out and, you know, all hell is, all hell is going to break loose. <laughs> but in fact, nobody cares. No, not a peep from anybody. And the fundamental reason we realize now 
is that there is so much business that's already available for everybody that we are not hurting anybody in their business. They are, they are continuing to grow. We are also continuing to grow. Right. So for example, one sort of very easy way of realizing this is if you, for I live in the Bay area, if you call IVF clinic in the Bay area, the average time before you can go see a physician is about three and a half months. And that's the average, right? So it's not, if you call someone like a UCSF, you know, nine months before you go see, see somebody. Right. And that's, that's the people who can afford the care in the first place. So you've already constrained the market from the actual total addressable market down to those who can afford the extravagant fifteen dollars to $30,000 average that's right. cost per cycle. So we are doing good business. We are growing. Everybody else is also growing. So they don't care. And that's a hallmark of disruption is that when disruption enters at the low end or by serving non-consumers, that incumbents tend to ignore it at first. But based on what you've shared today, yeah, I feel confident they will ultimately regret that decision. <laughs> and really just want to thank you so much for coming to speak with me today and for sharing what makes OMA a disruptor in the fertility industry and really what makes you an innovator worth watching for the long term. How you're targeting non-consumers, you have created this enabling technology in Sperm Insight that is powering your innovative business model and you've focused on the consumer to create a simpler, more convenient, more affordable and more accessible model to help people achieve the goals they're trying to achieve. So thank you so much. Super kind of you to have me. I really, really appreciate it. It was so much fun. Thank you. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to Life-Centered Healthcare. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And for more of the latest in healthcare, check out our website, christiansoninstitute.org. You can sign up for our newsletter and read our latest industry insights. Until next time, have a wonderful day, everyone.